Somebody under the bed, whoever can it be? I feel so very nervous, I call for Joanie. Joanie lights the candle, but there's nobody there. Hey, hi, diddly, I and out goes she. It's a clear winter's morning here in Griffith College. I'm at the gate, looking at the square stone buildings and watching a bright parade of multinational students troop past the sentry box. I'm wondering if they, like me, are thinking about the history of this place. Do you know anything about the history of these buildings? I know that uh, they were former former uh, British military barracks and that uh, after the Civil War and the uh, independence that the Irish Army decided to keep it. Um, I get a vibe that there some bad things might have happened here. Especially, it, it's it's very sort of daunting when you come in and you still see bars on the windows. Uh, used to be a barracks. That's about it. I suppose it has a bit of an airy feeling about it. Like, Well, I was told it was a military barracks owned by Britain, especially during the British years in Ireland. It was a military barracks, so that's all I know about it. On April 12th, 1922, a very different group of young men marched in here. It was not Griffith College then, nor even Griffith Barracks, but Wellington Barracks. It was one of the first British garrisons to be handed over to the Irish Free State. The young men wore not hoodies, tracksuits or jeans, but green uniforms, stiff peaked caps, and slung over their shoulder, a Lee Enfield rifle. They were some of the first men of the new Irish army. So recent was their transition from the guerrilla Irish Republican army that they were still calling themselves official IRA troops. This was not an elite force. Many were only boys of 16 or 17, recruited for a job, regular wages, meals and a place to live. The Irish Times noted... There was a complete absence of ceremonial, and the formal handing over of the barracks attracted little attention. At 8 o'clock this morning, Wellington Barracks Dublin was taken over by official IRA troops of the 2nd Eastern Division under Commandant T. Ennis. Could these raw Irish soldiers have imagined, as they made themselves at home in a vast empty complex, that for the next year their new home would be a scene of bloodshed, torture, battle and murder? For this is how things worked out. The first year of Griffith Barracks as an Irish army garrison was also a year of internecine strife, the Irish Civil War. Declan Power is a former Irish army officer and defence analyst. The British army were faced with a particularly difficult situation as they were, you know, they were an organised, cohesive, disciplined, professional military uh, who were tasked with handing over their bases, installations and barracks to the Free State Army but, or to the National Army. Who were the National Army? In some cases uh, you had Free State troops uniformed, armed, properly uh, formed up, marching in the gates. In some cases you had guys in bandoliers and trench coats. And maybe they were, in some cases they were the local Free State forces. But the, the local British uh, garrison commander had no idea who they were, uh, ultimately. But uh, they were the representatives of the new state. They handed over, as were their orders, and got the hell out. Michal McDonagh is a Sinn Féin press officer. The treaty obviously was signed on, on the 6th of December 1921 um, and there was a considerable gap between the signing of the treaty and the outbreak of the Civil War. It's often forgotten that there were you know, considerable peace efforts in between. There were very few Republicans, very few anti-treaty people uh, set out to uh, oppose the treaty or oppose the free state in arms. From at the beginning, um, I think there was people who did want a settlement, who didn't want to see if the thing could be worked out. But they were also they were adamantly opposed to the treaty because the fact that 
and the treaty said it, Ireland remained within the British Empire. So they fought for a republic, they fought for full independence and sovereignty, and now they were told that they must go into the British Empire or remain within the British Empire. So that was anathema to people who had, you know, who had been committed to the idea of an Irish Republic. Former Irish officer Declan Power doesn't agree. The, the, the extreme militancy of Irish Republicanism uh, was let out of the bottle. Because if you look at extremity, uh, notions of extremity, uh, in Irish Republicanism, uh, Irish Republican thought, it always is linked into very abstract things. Even today, even in the 70s and 80s, when you were listening to the provisional IRA uh, make statements, they're, they're, they're very abstract. They talk about these things like uh, the Irish Republic, like it's in existence, but their version of the Irish Republic has never existed. And de Valera was a younger man at the time of the Civil War, and his thinking uh, guided an awful lot of people into the thinking of the, this Republican abstract this is what we were fighting for. Instead of thinking along the lines of what they were fighting was to achieve a state and self-determination. So sometimes what happened was you had the Republicans beat the free state forces to taking over a barracks. And uh, one would immediately put in an attack on the other. And you had very sporadic uh, attacks happening before the official civil war around the country. Even in April 1922, with the official start of civil war still months away, things were far from peaceful. Within days of taking over the barracks, the garrison at Wellington was attacked twice by anti-treaty IRA fighters. The army statement said, men dressed in civilian clothes came up to the gate and fired point-blank at the men in the square. Two men were wounded. The attackers sped away by car, only to be stopped at a roadblock and arrested. They were carrying two automatic pistols. Only two days later, a more determined attack was made. It was 11.20 and the troops were under curfew. Only the sentries at the gates of the barracks were still up, no doubt stamping their heels and yawning away the boredom. Suddenly, Fire was opened from rooftops all around the barracks. The sentries scrambled for cover behind a steamroller and bullets pinged off the granite bricks. For an hour, the two sides exchanged fire. Two attackers tried to rush the front gate, throwing grenades at the soldiers inside. They were trying bombs of their own. A total of five men were wounded in the skirmish. Not a Stalingrad by any means, but enough to draw the battle lines between the soldiers inside the barracks walls and the guerrillas who lurked in the streets outside. In late June 1922, the undeclared civil war between opponents and supporters of the treaty became official. There was an ultimatum from London that the uh, Free State forces should uh, remove the IRA from the floor courts. The IRA um, executive, which was senior IRA officers who were anti-treaty, had formed an executive and uh, took over the floor courts. Um, there was no um, armed conflict between the forces at the time of the takeover. Tom Ennis, the Commandant of Wellington Barracks, was in command of the Free State troops who took the anti-treaty Republicans' position at the forecourts in Dublin. Several men from the barracks were wounded and killed. Within a month, the original garrison of Wellington was sent to different parts of the country to break up anti-treaty resistance, by sea to Wexford, Cork and Kerry, by land elsewhere. Soon soldier bodies were coming back to the barracks for funerals. Michael Crampton, for example, was only 17 when he joined the army. A native of Church Street in the Working Class Liberties, only 10 minutes' walk from Wellington Barracks. He died in Wexford on the 25th of July, killed in an ambush while escorting a train. Another, Volunteer Cuddle, a driver attached to motor transport in Wellington Barracks, was killed near Formoy in Cork. A mine blew up the tender he was driving, according to the press, to fragments, and the right side of his face was almost blown away. It would have been mayhem. And one of the reasons that it didn't actually become complete 
mayhem and lunacy. It's the fact that the Irish Free State benefited from the disbandment by uh, Britain of a lot of the old Irish regiments in the British Army. Uh, experienced professional Irish soldiers came back to Ireland and went into the Free State Army and became NCOs. And so we had a reasonably efficient NCO corps. The long-serving corporals and sergeants who had fought in the trenches, who had uh, maybe uh, been out in the various outposts of empire uh, and their careers were ending in the British Army, came home. And they were the people who pulled together this rabble of street urchins and ignorant farm labourers to become an organised army. And uh, we owe them a debt. But there were enough key officers and key people around the country to ensure that the Free State Army was able to get up and running. But it was a very close call at the start. And then they brought in a lot of new recruits, people who had no, no particular political commitment and who you know, joined for the pay and the uniform and so on. There were very hard times, so there were always people who would join an army for that reason, as they would have joined the British Army. And a lot of the Republicans would have contrasted themselves with that, you know, that they weren't, they weren't mercenary.